Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. On Thursday the 25th of June, 1942, at a few seconds after 9am. In the cold stone execution chamber inside Wandsworth Prison, the cruel life of the West End's most sadistic spree killer was cut short by a long drop and a sudden stop, as a second and third vertebrae of his neck were snapped, severing his spinal cord, and in an instant, the blackout ripper was dead. With the trial concluded, the evidence archived, and the limp body of Gordon Frederick Cummings buried in a pine box, the news stories ceased, and his name was no longer plastered inside of every newspaper. As in the minds of the public and the press, the case was closed. But in a race to exploit the graphic details of his grisly crimes, one important question was never resolved. Why did he kill? Why did a seemingly normal, relatively handsome, 28-year-old man with a bright military career, a happy marriage, and a grammar school education, who was raised in a loving and respectable middle-class family, and had no criminal record, no drug issues, and no history of mental illness. Why did he strangle, pose, and mutilate four women across four days in London's West End? Trying to pin down who Cummings was is an impossible task. As some people say he was charming, pleasant, and polite, whereas to others he was rude, aloof, and arrogant. By the time of his death, he had given no confession. His statements were lies, and his wife and family totally believed in his innocence. So, why did he kill? Well, that's what we hope to explore in this episode. But I warn you now, there is no smoking gun, there are no certainties, and what we unearth may ask more questions than it answers. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, this is Murder Mile, and for the first time ever, I present to you the final part of the full, true and untold story of the Blackout Ripper. Gordon Frederick Cummings was born on the 18th of February 1914 five months before the start of World War I. 
in the small rural village of Earswick. A quiet, leafy hamlet nestling in the wilds of North Yorkshire. Raised in an idyllic setting, surrounded by fields, streams and buzzing bees, Cummins' childhood was the epitome of perfect for a young boy, as with trees to climb, fresh fruit to eat and clean water to drink, he was a far cry from the industrial filth, poverty and squalor of the big cities. Being an adventurous boy who was eager to explore, but was always constrained by the boundaries of his tiny world, with Earswick consisting of little more than a handful of thatched cottages, twenty families and a small school. Although his village was barely four and a half miles from the bustling city of York, for a quizzical and excitable boy, it must have seemed a world away. Raised in a quiet, aspirational, middle-class house by his doting mother Anna, his strict schoolmaster father, John Robert, and his older brother, John Harvey, who, as the first-born son, had the honour of being named after his father, Gordon Cummings grew up with no sisters, no female friends, and no close relatives. As with John Harvey being an intensely private man, who, as the schoolmaster, felt a certain sense of seniority over everyone else, and with Anna coming from Northumberland in the far northeast of England, Cummins had very few playmates, and almost none who were girls. So, as an overactive, imaginative and frustrated young boy, stuck in a small friendless world, with no one outside of his own family to talk to, to play with or to learn from, Cummins drifted into daydreaming. Did it bother him that his brother was the firstborn and the favourite son? Did it matter that he knew very little about girls? And being the schoolmaster's son, was he bullied by the boys, teased by the girls, and allowed to get away with more than most? That we shall never know. But what he needed in his life was stability, and that's exactly what was missing. With the world in upheaval following World War I, the Cummins family went where the work was. So when John Robert became the schoolmaster of Vicar Pritchard's school in Llandovery in the southwest of Wales, they packed up, moved out, and once again, being uprooted, Cummins had lost the few friends he had. And as a new boy, in a new town, in a new country, he became an outsider. And being from a middle-class English family, in a Welsh working-class town, surrounded by people he didn't know, who spoke a language he couldn't speak, and saw words he couldn't read, as he withdrew into his own personal world, the more difficulty he had concentrating, the worse his academic record became. Which, for his father, being the schoolmaster, was deeply shameful. For anyone 
Those early teenage years are awkward enough. But for a hormonally charged Gordon Cummings, who lacked even basic social skills, a rudimentary knowledge of girls, and a sense of himself, it was around this time that being ashamed of his heritage and having a voice which was a mix of his father's native Yorkshire twang and his mother's natural Geordie, both being working-class northern accents, the Cummings adopted a mock-posh accent to distinguish himself. But being a divisive figure, who, like his arrogant father, exuded the sense of seniority of a man in denial of his own upbringing, this new accent only served to alienate Cummings further, and the more he was ignored, the more he began to resent others for making him feel inferior. Sadly, this hereditary sense of entitlement and a desire to live beyond his already generous means would bring a great shame to the family. When his father, a strict schoolmaster and a devout Catholic, was caught stealing money from the school. And although he professed his innocence, never confessed, and later, under the weight of evidence, repaid all of the money, being burdened by a sense of shame, he lost his job as the schoolmaster and the family were forced to move back to England. Did his father's actions show Cummings that the world owed him more than he was given? Did it give him an appetite to live beyond his means, even if that meant stealing? And did his father's foray into criminality, his arrogant rejection of the rules, and his denial of his obvious guilt, show Cummings that he was entitled to do whatever he wanted, and better still, he could get away with it? In 1929, the Cummins family uprooted to the typically English and delightfully picturesque rural village of Harleston in the Northamptonshire countryside, five miles northwest of Northampton, which, with a smattering of cottages, families and a school, was not unlike his birthplace of Earswick. Once again, they lived in the schoolhouse, with his father as the schoolmaster his mother as a housewife, his older brother training to be a teacher, and Cummins in his final year at Northampton Grammar School. And although his father had committed fraud, having not been prosecuted, and with very few repercussions for his actions, life for the Cummings family returned to normal. And even though they felt more at home here, as a very private family, they rarely socialised, and kept to themselves. Age 15 years old, having barely scraped through basic education at Northampton Grammar, with the help of his father's connections, Cummins attended Northampton College of Technology, where, even though he achieved a diploma in chemistry, he was described as lazy and easily distracted. Having blossomed into a handsome young man, a five foot nine inches tall, with pale blue eyes, fair wavy hair, 
and a charming smile. With an athletic physique and a well-rehearsed upper-class accent, Cummings had started to gain the attention of girls. But being over-eager, immature and inexperienced, he found it difficult to be himself, and instead he would boast, lie and show off. When Cummings got his first girlfriend, we shall never know. But as a lovesick teenager, desperate to explore this newfound world of feminine allure, although he was merely a student with a modest amount of pocket money, being eager to lavish his lady lovers with a fine array of gifts and trinkets, Cummings often lived beyond his meagre means. And to afford this lifestyle, he stole. And as much as those who knew him stated that he stole, up until his arrest for assault and murder, Gordon Frederick Cummings had no prior convictions, no criminal record, and not even as much as a black mark against his name. It's as if, like his father, money was paid and his crimes were forgotten. So what did Cummings' early foray into criminality include? Theft? Assault? Cruelty? That we shall never know. Was he excited by these thefts? Apathetic towards his victims? And did robbery become an alternative means to achieve his goals when his parents said no to more money? And being described as a thrill-seeker and a daredevil, was adrenaline the drug of choice? Was his love all-consuming? And in his desperate bid for attention, did he injure his head and change his personality forever? Or was this arrogant, aloof and narcissistic young man already on course to become a mass murderer? In November 1932, being eager to see the world and to spread his wings, 18-year-old Cummings moved to his mother's home city of Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the northeast of England, where he worked as an assistant warehouseman for Ellswick Leather Goods. But being dreadful at his job, easily distracted by girls, and lacking any kind of concentration, he was dismissed after just five months. Moving back home, a few months later, Cummings started work at George Baker & Co, another leather manufacturers, this time in Northampton. But he barely lasted one year, as not only was he incapable of following simple requests, but his employers described him as abnormal and dense. And once again, he was too easily distracted by girls. In October 1934, 20-year-old Cummings moved to London and worked as an assistant chemist in another leather goods firm called Reptile Dressers at 48-50 Bermondsey Street, where once again he lasted just one year before being booted out for being lazy, slow and unfocused. Three jobs in two years. And yet... In statements which would strangely mirror those who knew him in his final posting at the RAF base in Regent's Park, at none of his workplaces 
Did anyone recall Cummings having any friends? He was always short on money, always boasting, and eager to impress the girls. So, did moving to London, one of the world's most expensive cities, fail to curb his urge to live beyond his means? Did working in a leather tanning industry, a dangerous job which often meant that workers were exposed to highly noxious chemicals such as chromium, cyanide and mercury-based biocides, did this affect his personality or was the damage already done? And being based in Bermondsey, flanked by wharfs and factories on the south bank of the River Thames, and surrounded by dock workers, sailors, pubs and prostitutes. Is this where he found a fondness for hard drink and easy sex? Lacking any focus, Cummins may have squandered the next few years, drifting through a series of short-term, dead-end jobs in London's docks, splashing out on booze, chasing after babes, and blowing his cash before he'd even paid his rent. But it was here, in the summer of 1935, that he met and fell in love with a 22-year-old secretary whose name was Marjorie Stevens. Very little is known about Marjorie, who she was, how they met, or what she looked like. And as a shy retiring person who was very much a homebody, hoping to settle down in a nice house with a good man. Being a steadying influence, it seemed as if Marjorie would be the making of Cummins. Marjorie and Gordon married on the 28th of December 1938 at Paddington Registry Office on Harrow Road. Oddly, just a 10-minute walk where Evelyn Hamilton and Doris Junet would be murdered. By which time, Marjorie had been promoted to a theatre producer's secretary, Cummings had changed careers, and they both had moved in together into a rented first-floor flat at 21 Westmoreland Road, in the leafy suburb of Barnes, southwest London, which they shared with Marjorie's sister, Frida. In a rare statement, recorded after the trial, the intensely private Marjorie described their marriage as very, very happy, and that her husband has never been anything but kind and tolerant to me in every respect. He is a normal man who does not consort with other women, and he is certainly not a sex maniac or a pervert, further stating that he is not a drunkard. Occasionally he would binge, but when he got drunk, he would just become quiet, withdrawn, and would pass out. Marjorie remained faithful, married to Cummins, and maintained his innocence until the day he died. And although they wanted a family, in the four years of their marriage, they had no children. Shortly after meeting Marjorie, Cummins quit the graft of the leatherwork industry and enlisted in the Royal Air Force, a noble profession with regimented training, a regular income, and even though he was stationed right across Britain, he would regularly travel back to London's West End to visit Marjorie. So, 
with him being regularly billeted across the far-flung parts of Great Britain, did this cause a rift in their relationship? Was their marriage not as harmonious as she claims, with their marital bed being icy cold? Was this why they didn't have children, or was he suffering from impotence? And was it during these regular weekend visits to the West End that Cummins started visiting Soho prostitutes? Although the Royal Air Force kept the easily distracted Cummings in a strict routine of tight schedules, tidiness, and discipline, just like his fractured childhood, he rarely stayed in one place for more than a few months, as aircraftman Cummings was posted to several RAF bases in as many years. Unlike his previous employment at the Leather Tanners, his commanding officer described Cummings' conduct as exemplary, that he was efficient at his job and that he was never known to complain. And here he would remain in military service for eight years. But, as before, being unable to make friends, eager for attention and desperate to disguise his true self, his commanding officer also added that Cummings was boastful, cunning, prone to lying fond of drink, and that he was morally loose. Initially stationed at RAF Felixstowe on the south coast of England, Cummins was a flight rigger, part of number 85 RAF maintenance unit based in Folkestone Harbour, who assembled the airframes for seaplanes. As before, by adopting a posh accent and upper-class mannerisms, with his back straight and his nose in the air, as well as claiming that he was well-educated, which he wasn't, pretending that he spoke French, which he didn't, and professing to be wealthy, even though he was always broke, Cummings got the nickname of the Count. Next, Cummings was posted to RAF Helensborough in Dumbartonshire, Scotland a recently opened top-secret facility known as the Marine Aircraft Experimental Establishment, where, once again, being disliked, deceptive and boastful of his many conquests with women, Cummins had become known as the Duke. And as always, he was broke. Next, Cummings was posted to RAF Catterick, an aircrew training base for hurricanes and spitfires, back in his home county of Yorkshire, where the Count was widely known to be a boozer, a womanizer, a liar, and with robbery and theft having become a regular part of his routine to purchase gifts and trinkets to impress the ladies. Cummins had bought himself a gun. By April 1941, just 10 months before his killing spree, Cummings was posted to RAF Fighter and Bomber Command in Colherne, Wiltshire, in the west of England, where, having bragged to the locals in the White Hart, the Six Bells and the Fox and Goose public houses that he was the black sheep in a well-to-do family, he was nicknamed the Honourable Gordon Cummings. And although he was notoriously broke, somehow, 
Cummings would always come into money, which he would lavish on the ladies. With Cologne being a small rural village built around an airbase, on his evenings, Cummings would travel to the city of Bath, just eight miles away, where he would regularly frequent local brothels and places of ill repute, such as the Red Light District on Quiet Street and infamous prostitute hangouts at the Royal Hotel, the Francis Hotel and the Christopher, as well as a notorious cafe known as the Hole in the Wall, which was strictly out of bounds for military personnel. During those few months that Cummings was in Wiltshire, two women were robbed and beaten by a fair-haired airman in the village of Ford, just three miles northeast of Cologne, and several ladies' handbags were stolen in the Hole in the Wall Cafe, again by a fair-haired airman. Sadly, no positive identification of the man was made, and by the time that Bath Police had begun the investigation, Cummings had been reposted to RAF Predanac in Cornwall, where once again, the Count, having claimed to be nobility, became a member of the prestigious Blue Peter Club in Mullion, and having inveigled himself into a trusted position with the proprietor, he siphoned off booze, supplying free drinks to the local ladies. And it is said, he stole what was then £1,000 worth of jewellery from the apartments above. But for whatever reason, no formal complaint was made about Cummins to the police. So were these the only criminal acts which Cummins committed? a handful of thefts and a smattering of assaults in the pursuit of money and trinkets to impress his lady friends? Or had he progressed to being a prolific thief, able to bluff and bribe his way out of any conviction? That we shall never know. His final posting was at Abbey Lodge, known as Number 3 Aircrew Receiving Centre in Regent's Park where he was engaged in a three-week course to train as a pilot. Starting on the 2nd of February 1942, just one week before the murder of Evelyn Hamilton. And having trotted out a familiar tale of him being a wealthy black sheep, within his first week, Cummins had become notorious for being a liar, a thief and an oddball, who none of the airmen either trusted or liked especially when he tried and failed to buy himself another gun. Prior to his execution, Cummins was examined by Hugh A. Grierson, senior medical officer at Brixton Prison, in which he stated that there was no history of insanity in the family and that Cummings had no known mental health issues, no history of violence, and no obvious hint of cruelty to either people or animals in his nature. All of which was corroborated by his father, his mother and his wife. During the examination, Cummins was lucid, rational and polite. And although he was unemotional throughout, he denied suffering from blackouts, memory loss, drunkenness 
or any sexual perversions. He was also tested for VD, syphilis, and all known STDs and STIs, which came back negative. So, who was Gordon Frederick Cummings, and why did he kill? Well, all four of his murder victims, Evelyn Hamilton, Evelyn Oatley, Margaret Florence Lowe, and Doris Junet, all had money and personal items stolen. So if his impetus to kill was thefts to obtain fancy trinkets, like silver cigarette cases and a gold watch for his lady friends, why did he keep them? And why did he steal such valueless items as a handkerchief and a broken comb? If Cummins didn't have a prior history of cruelty, why would he, as a man who supposedly committed several assaults, robberies and thefts, why would he escalate to strangulation, torture, mutilation and murder in a matter of months? Was he secretly a sadist? Was there an incident which caused him to snap? And as a man who constantly craved the attention of women, why did he hate them so much? Cummings was clearly a man afflicted by erectile dysfunction, as at each murder scene, sex either didn't take place, or if it did, he didn't climax, as the condoms found on the floor were spent and empty. Impotence is extremely common amongst rapists, and as the attacks escalate, the sex becomes less important, as their overriding desire is to overpower, to control, and to humiliate, with many turning to strangulation and murder. So did Cummings have a prior history of rape, which went unreported? A key element to all of his murders were his victims' humiliation. He would rob them, strangle them, and mutilate them. But more importantly, he would pose them, with their bodies naked, their breasts exposed, their legs left wide open, as their bloodied and ripped corpses stared blankly towards the door. And yet, all of these injuries occurred after he had attempted sex. But why? I want to show you an incident which occurred on the night of Monday the 9th of February 1942 at 11pm the night that Evelyn Oatley was murdered. On the western corner of Piccadilly Circus, on the junction of Regent Street, Cummins, dressed in his blue military tunic and dark greatcoat, stood with the red-headed corporal, bartering for sex with two Soho prostitutes, a brunette called Molly de Santos Alves and a blonde called Laura Denmark. And as Laura escorted Cummings past Café Monaco, she waved to a dark figure in a bright red jumper, who was smoking a cigarette as she struggled to stay warm against the cold wintry wind. She was a working girl that Laura knew only as Lita Ward, but whose real name was Evelyn Oatley. Being a 22-year-old pretty petite blonde, Laura Denmark was exactly Cummings' type, and he wasn't shy 
of showing her his affection, as he unsteadily stumbled with her down Old Compton Street towards her Frith Street flat. Having sunk back one too many Canadian whiskies in Brasserie Universelle. Situated on the first floor of 47 Frith Street, above Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club today, Laura's tiny first floor flat was sparsely furnished, with just a bed with a sheet, a table with a candlestick, a washstand, a packet of razors, some hats, clothes, curling tongs, and a collection of kitchen cutlery. And as she popped a shilling in the coin slot of her electric fire to warm the flat up, they started to undress. As Laura lay on the double divan bed, naked except for a pair of black stockings, Cummins held in his right hand a condom. As his left hand feverishly bobbed up and down, inside the small tent of his white cotton pants, fiddling with his soft flaccid penis, as he leered at Laura's nakedness, trying to get himself hard. The more he tugged, the less it grew, and the greater his frustration got, as desperation etched across his shamed face and his cheeks flushed red. As with a deep sigh of defeat, he said, No, it's gone. And as a man who, many said, was unemotional, Laura sensed sadness in his eyes. Taking pity on him as his limp and shriveled penis lay motionless, Laura sidled up beside Cummins on the bed, a caring arm wrapped around this distraught man placing a tender kiss on his cheek as her head gently rested on his shoulder as they sat in silence, soaking up the warmth of the fire. And for the next half an hour, they chatted, they laughed, they joked, and enjoyed each other's company. Months later, during his trial, Laura described Cummings as polite, courteous, and a real gentleman. He seemed a very decent sort of chap and was very respectful to me. Feeling more comfortable in her presence, as Cummings stroked her blonde hair, his penis swelled. And as the tent of his pants bobbed further and faster, with a grip, a grimace, and a groan, he was done. With a relieved exhale, Cummings apologised to Laura, saying, I'm sorry for keeping you a long while. It must have been the drink. They then dressed, walked back to Piccadilly Circus, where he shook her hand, politely said, I wish you all the best, and I hope you earn more money tonight. And with that, he was gone. This moment occurred one hour before Gordon Frederick Cummings brutally murdered Evelyn Oatley. So this begs the question, 
Why was he so tender with women like Laura Denmark and Doreen Lytton, who he shared a cup of tea with? And yet, he would brutally torture, mutilate and humiliate Evelyn Hamilton, Evelyn Oatley, Margaret Florence Lowe and Doris Junet. At a critical moment in the night's nuptials, was his manhood mocked? Is this the difference between each woman, whether or not they scoffed at his lack of sexual prowess? Did a word, a look, or even a simple gesture spark a rage inside him, triggered by an unknown incident in this defiantly arrogant charlatan who believed in his own superiority? Or were these attacks entirely random? That we shall never know. After his execution, unable to believe that a man with no history of violence would suddenly go on a killing spree, murdering four women and attacking two others in as many days, the detectives of Scotland Yard examined their cold cases and found two unsolved murders with eerie similarities. On Monday the 13th of October 1941, 19-year-old shop assistant Mabel Church waved goodbye to a friend at Charing Cross Station. The next day, demolition workers found her naked, strangled body in a bombed-out, derelict house on Hampstead Road, just a few roads east of Regent's Park. On Friday the 17th of October 1941, 49-year-old Edith Eleonora Humphreys was strangled and bludgeoned to death in bed, in her flat on Gloucester Crescent, just two streets northeast of Regent's Park. In both instances, their assailant was never arrested, questioned or identified. In both instances, they were robbed of money and personal items. In both instances, there was nothing that seemed to connect these women. In both instances, they were strangled within days and streets of each other. And even though, during that week, Cummings was stationed 98 miles away in RAF Culhern in Wiltshire, just like Abbey Lodge, there was no accurate record of his movements in any logbook. As with most airbases, it was common for airmen to hitchhike to and from London, so if he did travel, his journey went unrecorded. And with Cummins regularly visiting his wife Marjorie at her workplace on the Strand, which is just a few streets south of Piccadilly Circus, not only would this put him within walking distance of Regent's Park, but also on the same road as Charing Cross Station, where Mabel Church was last seen. Posthumously, Cummins was considered a viable suspect by the police in both cases. But with very little evidence, no charges or conviction could be brought against him. There's no denying that Gordon Frederick Cummings was the epitome of a psychopath. 
a habitual liar who showed no emotion for his victims, no remorse for his actions, gave no confession for his crimes, and had a single-minded drive to fulfill only his own desires. And yet, somehow, by becoming a different person to different people, Cummings could be both sweet and sadistic, charming and cruel, tender and a torturer, by being opposite sides of the same personality. Even during his trial, when he was faced with insurmountable evidence against him, Cummings was less interested in defending himself than he was of catching the eye of any girl in that courtroom. Was Cummings so arrogant that he truly believed that he was innocent? Was Cummings such a daydreamer that he could no longer tell the difference between right and wrong? Or, as a lonely boy with very little experience of girls, who was raised by a doting mother, a self-righteous father, who stole to fund a lavish lifestyle, a crime for which he was never convicted, did these minor moments shape an ordinary boy into a sadistic maniac? who believed that he could literally get away with murder. And finally, if the killing spree of Gordon Frederick Cummings wasn't a snap decision, but instead it was an act of selfish greed which slowly manifested itself over the 28 years of his life, the real question that we should be asking is how many more women were attacked and murdered by the Blackout Ripper. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. That was the final part of the Blackout Ripper series. Originally, it was going to be a 10-part series, uh, but I felt that the life of Gordon Frederick Cummings his personality, and the key moments in his life which led up to those murders could be best summed up in a single episode. But there are still many unresolved questions about his life, so I shall be returning to the Blackout Ripper story once I've done more research. This is also the final episode of Murder Mile for this season, as I need to take a well-earned break to rest and research season two. But I hope to post you some goodies while I'm away, including the full unedited eight-part series of the Blackout Ripper with all the crap taken out. Just one nice big long episode. Lovely. This week's new Patreon supporter is Anita, whose generous donation is going to buy myself an official set of Murder Mile knuckle dusters. So if you see a mouthy youth in London with the words Elim Redrum written backwards on his forehead, Anita, that's for you. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. And until Murder Mile returns, stay safe and sleep well. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about 
work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hello. Hello. Hello! Hello, friends. Welcome to Extra Mile for part eight and the final part of the Blackout Ripper story. Uh, anyone who's not tuned in before, this is Extra Mile. This is the piece at the end of each episode where we go in a little bit deeper into each, uh, into the part that you've just listened to. Uh, so that's the final part of uh, uh, Blackout Ripper. As I said, it was going to be a ten-parter, but I realised that it was just—it was just dragging it out too long if we did it in a ten-parter. So um, this is—I I managed to get the final three episodes into uh, one episode, and I, it works. I think it works a lot better as one episode. Uh, but there's still a lot of stuff that we need to dive into. Uh, obviously, the two extra murders that I mentioned on there. So I need to go away and really look into those. So I might do those in season two. We may come back to that. Um, I'm also digging into the still digging into his back life because I want to see if there is any extra attacks out there or did the blackout ripper attack anyone on his day off it's it's that day off it's still baffling me I can't I'm struggling to find out what he did on his day off I don't think he took a night off I really don't um anyway update um I've moved away from where I was so I'm not near the coot anymore um you can hear there's some Canadian geese outside. Um, I'm up in a place called Tottenham, North London at the moment. I'm just on the, the wetlands out there. And there's everyone's probably thinking it's lovely. There's loads of bird song, and you're probably going, oh, that sounds really lovely. As a podcaster, it's really frustrating. Even though it's a hot day today, I've had to close all the windows and doors. I've got all the bed sheets all over the windows and everywhere just to drown out the noise. So I'm going to have to work out how to edit this episode and get rid of all the sounds of bloody birds. Right. OK. Blackout Ripper. This was the final episode of Blackout Ripper. Um, I'm going to state that this is not a definitive history of the Blackout Ripper. It's hard to find really is to find accurate information about him what is out there it's, it's like with most things do you know uh, you can kind of get census records even though he was born 1914 so we've only just got the 1911 census record uh and there's you know uh, uh, there's some ancestry stuff out there but it's not great and it's also hard to pin down exactly where he is and what he's about and you can't really get a lot of idea of personality from a census record and things like that so um I went through all of the National Archives files about the trial of Gordon Frederick Cummings and I just basically pieced together lots of information from small details. This is the way I go through it is I don't go through it and go, what's the big dates like? Oh, when did he get when did he murder this person? Which I've done. Um, what I don't go through is find all the people who've given uh, 
statements about him or I go through all of his personal letters because there are personal letters in the file um, and you just try and get a sense of his personality from the records from the letters you can read a lot about a person about the way they write a letter about their arrogance um, and do I have a sample of it yes okay so I've got a little letter of his that I'll read you later on you kind of get a sense of who he is um, but yeah, no, there's still a lot of details that we don't know about Gordon Frederick Cummings, but I tried to put as much as I can into this episode so you can make the decision. Because there is no definitive decision about what he is like. Um, it's never been recorded whether he's got a mental illness. They said he hadn't, but this was 1942. What really did they know about mental illness? They, 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 they really didn't know about PTSD until kind of very recently. I mean, you know, they used to regard it as shell shock. So uh, well, that's what they used to call it. So, you know, it's only now that we're really diving into the world of mental health. So uh, uh, we don't really know much about him. So Blackout Ripper, born on the 18th of February. Why is that significant? That's my birthday. Yeah, I knew he was born February, but I didn't realise it was on my birthday. Yeah, so, uh, so I share uh, a birthday with the Blackout Ripper. Lovely. Um, now... Um, even one of the details that it's even difficult to nail down was his mother. It's so I've put in there that his mother's name was Alice. Uh, sorry, Anna. Sorry, but this is it's, it can be quite difficult. So um, on his birth certificate, they only list his mother's surname, and his mother's surname is Lee. But when you look on the national census records. They list both his mother as Alice Batty. Um, it could be Beatty. I think it's Beatty, actually. Alice Beatty, uh, who is from Northumberland, or Sarah Jane Boone, for, but both of Northumberland. Now, Northumberland is right, because that's definitely where his mother came from. Um, but it's really difficult to find out um, who she was who this really this lady was um so i had to track it down in two separate parts so obviously we know that her original surname was lee so we know that's definitely right because it's on the birth certificate um and what i had to do was i went through all the archive files and I went through all the newspapers and everything like that because it wasn't on the national census at all we don't have the national census for 1921 yet which is what we need we've still got three years to wait um, so I went through all of the newspaper reports. You know I don't like newspapers, but sometimes they are useful. And I found in one newspaper report a reference to his mother being called Anna. And that was it. So even though the National Census lists his mother's name as either Alice Beatty or Sarah Jane Boone, which it isn't, I've checked both of those names, and both of those names are incorrect, they're not Gordon C Frederick Cummings' mother. Uh, Anna Lee is... Although, <laughs> I stipulate now, in three years' time when the National Census for 1921 comes out, I could be found wrong. Either way, we've got the details about his father and his brother right. Whew. Sometimes it can be quite hard if the, if, the de if the information is not out there. So, uh, Gordon Frederick Cummings, uh, as we mentioned, previously worked at Ellswick Leather Goods in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Um, now, this would make sense because his mother came from Newcastle upon time, so it makes sense that he would go somewhere where he had family. Um, and he was there from uh, November 1932, when he was around 18 years old. He was there for a, just a couple of months, where he worked as uh, a warehouseman. And interestingly, um, 
Evelyn Hamilton, his first victim, lived just two and a half miles away from where he was at Ellswick Leather Goods in Newcastle upon Tyne. Now, there's no connection between them at that point, but I just think it. I just think it's interesting that they were so close. It, it's as they say, it's uh, six degrees of separation, isn't it? It's like if you were to sit on a bus and you think I don't know anyone here, but if you spoke to everyone on that bus, you would find that you're probably connected to you're probably related to one person and you're probably connected to at least five like really closely connected whether through friends or family um i added this back into the story i thought it was quite interesting that gordon frederick cummings and marjorie cummings were married at paddington registry office on the harrow road uh, which is literally just a 10 minute walk from where evelyn hamilton and doris june were murdered and where he attacked um catherine mulcahy uh, and where he was with uh, Doreen Lytton. So it's kind of weird that he was, even though he's not from London, he would kind of, you know, because he was living in work, London at the time. But of all the registry offices, because there was a registry office to get married in every single borough in London. Do you know, he was in Barnes. There's a Barnes registry office. There's a Richmond registry office. Do you know, his wife had a job in Oldwich, there's one there's one just round the corner from there so why did they get married at Paddington registry office i'm not saying there's a connection i'm just saying it's weird isn't it it's weird that they would pick Paddington registry office um so um when he was enlisted in the RAF uh obviously he would obviously come to london quite a lot to be with marjorie she was working on the strand uh, as a theater producer's assistant um and that, as i said that's just 10 minutes so literally a 10 minute walk from piccadilly circus where many of his tax attacks took place now whether it was around this time that he started to uh visiting a lot of soho prostitutes because he obviously it's very clear that he's very comfortable in soho he knows the streets very well he seems to know most of the prostitutes very well and uh from what we've seen of his background he seems to understand how to engage with a prostitute as well like he never goes up to prostitutes and says oh, i'm looking for sex he always says uh which way are you walking is kind of the standard way of saying um i'm looking for sex do you know and they hop in a cab together that's the kind of the protocol um now it's interesting when in one of his statements he claims that he only visited two prostitutes in his whole life and he states that they were who we found out to be Laura, uh, sorry, Doreen Lytton and Laura Denmark. Now, Doreen Lytton was the prostitute uh, after the murder of uh, Doris June, and they had a cup of tea, and she gave him the spare gas mask. And Laura Denmark, who's the last one that I've just told you about, which I, I find quite an interesting story, where he you know, he couldn't get it up. He says they're the only two prostitutes he was ever with, but we know full well that. On the on that Thursday night, he was with at least four prostitutes that we know of. So he was with at least six or eight during that week. What did he do on the Tuesday? I'm guessing he went out with other prostitutes as well. So he claimed, I mean, we know he's a massive liar. He said he was only with two prostitutes in his whole life. There was easily eight in that week. So quite clearly he was a habitual user of prostitutes probably started quite small when he moved to london in his 20s early 20s i'm guessing he used prostitutes on a regular basis and it started escalating so by the time he was in the raf he was probably using a prostitute every single week probably multiple prostitutes during the week as well that's what it seemed to be 
Um, as a side note, um, obviously we mentioned that he would steal uh, trinkets for ladies, uh, such as the, the silver cigarette cases. Obviously, the, the silver cigarette case for Evelyn Hamilton was never discovered. We still don't know where that is. Uh, and she was the first woman murdered. Also, her handbag was never found. But it is known, because the police actually got hold of Gordon Frederick Cummings' letters, that he would send presents to his lady friends. So even when he was married, he had loads of lady friends, even though Marjorie, his wife, said he never consulted with ladies. He did. He, had, he was married, and he had lots of lady friends. And he would send them trinkets that he'd stolen, but also expensive handbags. So it is believed that the small brown kind of envelope-type handbag that uh, Evelyn Hamilton had that he may have sent it to one of his lady friends. Police did get in touch with some of the ladies who he communicated with, and none of them said that they'd received a small brown handbag from him. Although, if it was you, would you admit it? Or would you throw it in the bin? Would you chuck it out? I know I probably would. So, um, there was an interesting letter... Uh, that Cummings sent on the 29th of April uh, 1942 from Brixton Prison. So he'd just been found guilty by that point and he'd he'd been uh, sentenced to death but he hadn't been given an execution date yet. In Britain around that time they did it pretty quickly. It was normally around three months. There's none of this death row bullshit like in America when they're on death row for 25, 30 years. Back in Britain it was kind of like, you know, you got your... Th- You've been given your date. You got your three months. You've got a period to do your all of your appeals. If your appeals are successful, it goes back. If not, that's your date. You get executed. There's no messing around. Uh, not that I agree with the death penalty. It's just it was you know, we had a relatively efficient assist, efficient system. So um, Cummings had just been found guilty, uh, sentenced to death. So he wrote a letter um, to a person. A couple called Dot and Laurie Williams. Now, uh, Laurie Williams was a corporal who was stationed at RAF Predanac in Cornwall, who was his prior posting before he moved to London. Now, this is interesting because it actually shows that he did he did have friends here and there. He wasn't entirely friendless, but he did did seem to like people. Maybe they saw the other side of him, the the side the the politer, nicer side, or you know um so it's an interesting letter it's only short uh he spends most of it talking about how he's entirely innocent uh and how the evidence evidence against him was planted uh his parents agree with that they say most of the evidence was planted as well and that uh they blame it on another corporal who was on the RAF baits who was who was in his quarters was found a bloodied towel but apparently um it was to do with an illegal abortion of his girlfriend um so that's really what that's about but the letter from cummings okay um it says you can get a sense of who he is from this letter he writes uh the past few days have been a dreadful ordeal and i'm glad it is over now that i'm here my father and legal counsel are i hope redoubling their efforts to find the guilty man and to prove my innocence before it is too late um, 
And then he goes on, it's, it goes in lengthy into details about what the evidence is and kind of uh, why it's wrong. When you when you read the evidence he's talking about, it is just bullshit. He is, he's talking through his ass, he really is. Uh, and then he goes into more personal matters relating to the bombing of Bath, uh, where he used to hang out by the German by the German bombers. So he says, Jerry, which is the word for the German uh German army, German air force. Uh, Jerry does seem to have made a mess of Bath, doesn't he? I wonder if the Christopher has been touched. Of course, the Christopher Hotel, where he used to go to pick up a lot of prostitutes, or the Hole in the Wall, which was the cafe where prostitutes used to hang out, and an a fair-haired airman was investigated for stealing handbags. Interesting. Um, and then he carries on. Perhaps not. Dens of dens of iniquity always escape unscathed. And then, as kind of this, I like this because this gives you a real sense of who he was as a person. There's a dark sense of humour with it within him. He ends it with a creepy line, and I, I, I haven't been able to find out who he's relating to here. But he says, uh, "My love to you, Dot and niece Sally. If there's any justice in the world, I'll be seeing you all again." If not, tell Gwen I'll come and haunt her. Yours optimistically, Cummins. Well, that was nice, no, that's very nice. So yes, yes. When he dies, he will come back as a ghost and he'll haunt either their daughter. I must Gwen must be their daughter. So uh yeah, lovely. Um so <laughs> that was the Blackout Ripper series. Hope you enjoyed that. Um uh, so I'm away now for a little bit. I'm gonna take a couple of days just to relax because i'm pretty tired uh but i'm booking in time at the national archive to sit down and go through uh what will become season two i've already got some uh episode one is going to be a cracker uh it's a story i've been looking forward to telling for a long time it's not murder per se but it's there's enough death and gore and excitement in it and it'll be a story that i hope you will go wow i never knew that it really is it's one of these stories that's life-changing it will change your entire perspective on the world and it is a story that changed all of our lives not just one family not just one person it changed all of our lives um i've also got some more serial killers coming back i'm going to be doing i'm going to end season two with a very very big well-known uh serial killer case but as always you know with me i don't take it on face value i don't do this bullshit that everyone else does where they just read wikipedia and you just get the basic shitty details that you can read in any old book i go back to the original archive files and i'm going to bring you a serial killer case but from an entirely different perspective in the same way that i attacked dennis nielsen and kind of instead of going oh isn't he a bad man he kills people i take you into the sympathetic line of who was he as a person? What do we know about him? Why was he so damaged? Why was he was he abused? You know, that's that's what we want to know is why. And this is what's frustrating with Cummings is we can't get to that because he was such a brick wall of a man. He wouldn't let you in. But that's what I hope to get to. So I will do that in uh, season two. There'll be one of those. Uh, I'm doing another infamous uh, murderer case. Uh, of which people always say that he was a murderer, but I can prove that he was not a murderer. Uh, and we'll do some other small cases from in and around Soho and uh, King's Cross and kind of all the other murder areas that we hang out. So that was the final episode of Murder Mile for season one. 
a big thank you to everyone for your reviews everyone thank you to everyone for your fantastic feedback it's all been really great and very much appreciated uh thank you for listening of course and thank you for sharing with your friends and um i will hear you hear you listen to you yeah we'll speak soon no we won't speak soon because we don't speak do we you'll hear me waffling soon (laughs) have yourself a good week hope you're safe and uh Murder Mile Murder Mile will continue very soon. Bye bye.